now they're making Ghostbusters with only women. What's going on? Shut up and sit down. We will respond with that timeless creed that sums up the spirit of a people. Yes, we can. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other thing, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Freedom and the dignity of the individual have been more available and assured here than in any other place on Earth. I know the human being and fish can coexist peacefully. Read my lips. And then we're going to Washington, D.C. to take back the White House. I love the poorly educated. We're the smartest people. We're the most loyal people. Do you see what my hair looks like? I can't do this anymore. It's completely <laughs> out of control. <laughs> There's gray in it now. My beard's too long. I know I can do something about that, but I just won't at this point. So well, it's a dignified look. We're gonna have to stop the videos because people don't want to look at us anymore. Oh <laughs> uh, boy! Hi guys, it's another week under quarantine. Uh, Sparstool politics too. Uh, I'm your host Nick McGuire, joined as always by Dr. Bill Muck from North Central College and Dr. Phil Barker from Keene State College. Hi guys. Hey Nick. Hey. Uh, before we get started, all the usual fun stuff. If you guys have questions, comments, beer suggestions, uh, want to see what we are up to, uh, follow us on Twitter at Barstool Paul, P-O-L, uh, Facebook at Barstool Politics, uh, where you will find our uh, our live shows, which are uh, it's happening right now. Um, you can comment or ask questions while we're doing that. Um, we'll try to respond to you. Um, beers that we try, you can find on Untapped on iOS or Android. Just search for Barstool Politics on there. There you go. Um uh, the podcasts, uh, Spotify, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Google Play Music, most major podcasting platforms. I bit the tip of my tongue. So if Ouch. I sound even worse than I normally do, it's because I'm, I'm, <laughs> major podcast grew um, up there, Nick. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, something else, uh, our, our merch line, uh, that's what it is. Um, you can find on teespring.com. You'll find direct links on our social channels. <laughs> There's one of the mugs right there. <laughs> see what you miss when you're not on the live show it's it's so much better um uh yeah uh, uh stuff on our, our social channels directly on our social channels mugs like uh like bill has um hoodies t-shirts other fun stuff so definitely check that out um interesting <laughs> interesting where uh week to say the least in in a lot of different ways um, the North Korea stuff was, uh, that kind of came out of left field. Um, still not quite sure what's, what's going on there. Um, people are apparently really fed up with being inside too. Um, just like me, they're tired of not having their hair dyed and need to prove that with guns and, uh, and, and bandanas. So very important again, live free or die hard. Um, but, uh, Bill, can you kind of give us, uh, what we're going to be talking about, uh, for our, our big topic? Absolutely. Yes, Nick, the people are angry. Over the last week, we've seen small-scale protests break out across the country as individuals, sometimes heavily armed, have expressed their frustration with the social distancing measures imposed by state governments. Rallies were held in Maryland, Texas, Colorado, Ohio, and Wisconsin, with many more planned for the next week. The protesters are demanding that governors reverse shutdown orders and have been chanting things like, Fire Fauci! and We Are Not Sheep! and holding thoughtful signs like, Social distancing equals communism! While it's important to note that we're talking about relatively small numbers here, the groups have one big and very powerful fan, the President of the United States. 
President Trump has been leaning into the, their anti-government message and on Friday tweeted, liberate Michigan, liberate Minnesota, liberate Virginia. Even though his government continues to advise social distancing, the president himself has praised the protesters, saying they seem to be very responsible people who are just expressing their views. On Tuesdays, uh, Tuesday, Trump's Department of Justice weighed in when Attorney General Bill Barr said the DOJ would support legal action against states that continue to impose strict social distancing rules. An interesting little wrinkle. At a macro level, Trump's embrace of the anti-government protest is consistent with the 2016 campaign tactic of mobilizing voter anger and mistrust of the government. A lot to break down here. Uh, what are we to make of these protests? Is Trump's embrace of a good or embrace a good or bad political move? What about Bill Barr? Phil, we find ourselves in a unique moment where the head of the federal government is attacking his own government. Uh, what's your read of all this? I. <laughs> It's it's strange. It's different. Um, uh, you know, I, there, there's a lot of interesting aspects to this. I, I mean, the the, the protests are um, they seemingly popped up out of nowhere. Uh, they didn't. I mean, there's been lots of reports on how this is. So we're, I don't know. Were you all familiar with the astroturf movement? That that term astroturfing. I, I no. was not familiar with that, but uh, people I've seen that referenced a number of times. Astroturf referring to the fact that they're they're fake grassroots movements, right? So they're, they're astroturf movements and that um, they've been, yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> that there are a number of organizations that are sort of top down groups that have put together web pages, organizing this Facebook, you know, groups. It's not, it's not a grassroots. It's not that people, you know, got pissed off and sort of independently went out and, and did these things. It doesn't mean that people aren't pissed off, right? Mm -hmm. I, there's been a lot of comparisons to the tea party movement, which had, in, in fact, um, let me kind of pause for a second. <laughs> uh, the, I, just before we came on, I read an interview with Theta Scotchpole. So that name doesn't mean anything to anyone unless you're a grad student in political science. But Theta Scotchpole is uh, she's a Harvard uh, professor um, who's very well known, um, who has written about revolutions and social movements, but also has written about the Tea Party movement. And I saw an interview with her in which she was saying there are lots of commonalities with the Tea Party movement, which was really successful in that what you had in the Tea Party movement were these organizers, Koch brothers and all sorts of others who were trying to mobilize people. And you had people who were legitimately in the Tea Party pissed off about Obama and government and all sorts of other stuff. And they came together to make this really effective political moment. Theta Scotchpole was saying you have the top down part. But the part that's unclear is whether or not there actually is enough resentment to get people kind of caught up in this movement. Um, and there are some, right? These protests were a few hundred people. But the polling is still largely, most Americans, they're not crazy about the lockdown and being stuck at home, but they're they're not ready to go back out, right? They still see this as, as the, the sort of right thing to do. The interesting thing for me will be going forward, how that changes. So as this this moves from a month and a half into two and a half, three and a half, you know, four months. I, who knows? We don't know how long this is going to last. What will happen at that point? How how fed up will people get? I think in the moment right now, I, I, these things aren't going to go away. But I think that the media coverage of them has maybe been disproportionate to the actual protests. All, all of that to say that the question of whether this is good or bad for Trump, I, it sort of seems like um, all things being equal, I feel like this could be good for Trump, right? This is the sort of thing that he feeds on the, these kind of protests and, and this oppositional politics. 
But I don't feel like all things are equal at this point. We're in the midst of a pandemic. I think people think it's different. They realize things are different. They realize that the lockdown isn't great, but it's necessary. I'm not, it feels like it would be way more, if, if Trump is thinking about his political future, doing something like actually, you know, pushing testing or whatever would be way more effective than the sort of grievance politics that he's doing. But it also feels like this is what has worked for him in the past. And he's going back to the greatest hits, right? He's trying to, you know, his, his approval is not great. He's trying to, to fire people up. I just don't know that it'll work this time in the same way. What do you, what do y'all think? Yeah, I, I think there's well, there's a lot to break down there. I think the to reflect on what you said at first, like the nature of the organization to me is really, really fascinating because, yeah, there are there are elements of of grassroots protest, but to your point, they're really, really small, and they would be essentially non-existent if it wasn't for this broader net these networks that are connecting everybody. You're seeing similarities across the Facebook messages from the different states, I and mean, it's 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 this kind of a brilliant combination of individuals a small group of individuals on the ground in these localities that are upset pissed off and then this really sophisticated network that can amplify them that can connect them to funds uh very much like like the early stages of the tea party and even though they're small now i think the potential for growth is there right especially when you think about president trump having this big megaphone and i think you know you're you're right that the anger and frustration is only going to get more and more and I anticipate that Trump is going to continue to play this up more and more. There's going to be more blame put on the governors. He's going to say, I'm the guy trying to open up the economy. I'm trying to get you back to work. It's these governors who won't comply. I mean, I feel like that's the game, the battle that he's setting up. I, I don't know for sure, but it feels like it's drifting that way. Where, in, in which case, that there could be some real teeth to this movement. It's um, the the pro protests themselves, I think, are this they're an aberration more than anything. Yes, I think there is probably some uh, measure of them not being legitimate in the sense that we would like them to be. Um, but I, I think that this is a wider problem that is getting the wrong type of attention at the wrong moment. Um, while I do think that the majority of, of American citizens do think that we still need to abide by social distancing and most businesses should be closed. I think that there is a, a growing, I, I don't know if resentment is the right word, but a, a growing uh, uh, feeling across many uh, parts of, of society that think that a complete shutdown of everything at all times without any exceptions is no longer sustainable. Um, coming out of this, regardless of what happens now, we're already going to be at record unemployment tons of small businesses are not going to be able to make this on top of the uh the the constant political wrangling that's still going on in congress about providing additional funding to small businesses and where that's going which includes you know uh multinational corporations with thousands of employees and some educational institutions that have 40 billion dollar endowments and and just things that that, that shouldn't be uh part of of this rescue package um, you're already seeing it kind of filtering into the, uh, state and local sphere, uh, uh, your, your state, uh, bill, uh, uh, Republican lawmakers in uh, Wisconsin were already pushing the Supreme court to block the governor's, um, uh, expansion of the, uh, the shelter in place order, yeah. which I think he was trying to do through the end of May. Correct. It's, or was it's it one of the longer ones. Yeah. And yeah, it, it's, I think it's significantly longer than any, any other ones in the Midwest area. Um, mm -hmm. 
Uh, yeah, like I, I think that the way that it's the people who are there who who are actually protesting, you, you're fucking idiots. When there when there's actual footage of you saying that you need to go out to get your hair dyed, and you're out there with semi-automatic rifles and just come on man you're not doing us any favors my favorite sign was the one i I sent you guys earlier where it's sacrifice the week i mean that's where they're at sacrifice the week um it, it, it just the more time that this goes on i think you're going to see a shift where people go i i physically need to be able to work to survive and it's 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 not a selfish thing. It's not that you want people to die. It's the fact that we don't have a functioning society anymore. And the only thing that seems to be happening is that we're keeping everything shut down with any, without any sort of plan to incrementally open things up. You can lambast the president's and the administration's plan for phasing things in over the next few months. But the fact that more and more governors, especially, and, and especially in the Midwest now, which is hilarious, are saying that they're just going to extend this because there's no additional data that they're really working with, or they're saying that we haven't hit the peak yet, quote unquote, um, people are going to start questioning that. Because at what point do we turn this around? If if a vaccine is at best 18 months away, and that's even a, a remote possibility, um, testing isn't in place they're not really pushing through any sort of functional treatment and mass yet. What are we supposed to do? We can't go another three months without anything functioning. You have to start doing things or this is going to turn into a larger, um, not necessarily economic problem, but a larger um, national cohesion problem. People are really going to start rebelling against this shit. And pointing fingers. And that's why I think Trump may be smart here to be getting out ahead of this to to be even though it's it's maybe unethical to be arguing that people should be getting back out right now. He's going to position himself where he can say, see, I was right, uh, which, again, deeply problematic. But uh, but politically, it may be savvy. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, that that will be the interesting thing to see how this plays out, because I, I think you're you're right, Nick, the, the longer this goes on, the greater the pain is going to be. And I don't mean pain like inconvenience. I'm tired of being home. I mean, economic pain, right? So there are already a lot of people who are in a rough economic spot. And, you know, if this continues for three, four, six more months, that's going to get I mean, that's that's going to be like people have to go and make money at some point. Yeah. The question will be, as you said, Bill, there's going to be finger pointing. But the question is, what are people like in that moment? And I, I don't know that we know this yet. What are people going to be pissed about? Are they going to be pissed about the lockdown? Or are they going to be pissed about a failed governmental re- or whatever response to the pandemic? And and even if, if it, you know, like these movements or people do get upset and they start to reopen. So Trump may be trying to get ahead of this. But if he somehow changes the language to reopen and reopening leads to a reblossoming of the virus and having to shut down again, then that's not, you know, that that's where I, I it's hard to hard to kind of see where that goes. I, 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 I think it could be again. I think this is this is the method that has worked for him in the past, this sort of finger pointing grievance, whatever. I'm not sure that when in this case where there's an actual physical problem that's not going to go away, I don't know that it will play out well for him. I, he might get his way in the short term in that people get pissed off enough that things start to reopen. But that's unless unless again, we don't know that we still don't know a lot of stuff about this unless he gets lucky and this virus sort of dies down or it's not as bad as we thought that could backfire in massive ways on him. 
Well, and you mentioned the polling, and yeah, I don't know, I haven't seen most recent polling, but a couple of days ago, it was like less than ten percent of the public or those that were being polled that I saw were saying they want to, they want to get back out right away. I mean, there's still a sense that there needs to be more time, even given the economic implications of that. Um, and P- Trump's poll numbers have not been good. So we had this initial bump, the rally around the flag, and we've talked about how that was less than other leaders around the world. And now he's starting to come down a little bit. So there's yep. there's the potential that a lot of blame is going to be put on him for the response, you know, deserved or undeserved. Um, and it, it, to your point, if he does call for early uh, reengaging the economy and the things blow up again, I mean, this, this, it could be a disaster. It's it, it's hard to know. I think there are many motiva- motivations for the protesters, some of which are are economic. You've got big industry here that's trying to organize a lot of this. I mean, they want, you know, they want people back to work for economic reasons. There are political reasons that are playing out for Trump. I think there's larger ideological reasons you're hearing, you know, lots of arguments for freedom, right? I mean, that that kind of uh, Tea Party element is there. So there's a lot of things that are coming together to shape this movement. I feel like there's there's some, I mean, we've talked about how we're a divided country in lots of ways before. I, I feel like that plays out here a little bit as well. And this is where it could backfire on Trump or he could be. Uh, anyway, I, I think there are parts of the country that have been really hammered, right? New York City. I think if you live in New York City, you don't doubt the severity of this yeah. crisis or the need to sort of lock things down. But if you're living in lots of other parts of the country, there are like in, in you know, in Keene, New Hampshire, there are some cases uh, in New Hampshire as a state. There have been, I don't know, 40 deaths. It, it doesn't seem that awful. Right. And so people saying we should lift the restrictions, we should get back out there. I can I can see people getting on board with that. But that's also where that could backfire in that you you latch on to those differences. And I think people who haven't sort of experienced it up close don't necessarily understand or realize the severity of it. Opening things up now could, in fact, bring that to those places in a way that could you know, hurt the economy there. And there's just so much that's up in the air and unknown at this point. Yeah. And we will see some of that. Right. I mean, so there are some states was with Georgia is opening a lot of things. I mean, bowling Texas. alleys. and Yeah. Uh, yeah. Tennessee. And, and so we're going to see very early on whether this works or not. And if it does, I, you're going to see more states open. But I'm just I'm afraid that you're going to see cases pop up there. I mean, hopefully, hopefully not. Uh, but this will be just like the international system is a test case for how to approach it. We're going to see it in the United States. We're going to see whether these uh, moving away from social distancing is is a good plan. Um, well, I, I mean, realistically, don't we we need that variable in this in this experiment, though? Like, If you want to talk about the states as the laboratories of democracy, uh, clearly most states are not going to follow this. If you have a smaller group where cases themselves and, you know, Georgia is an aberration and I have no idea why they're opening the things that they're opening. Um, but if you're still telling people to abide by social distancing, not everything is open at 100 percent capacity. Certain sectors are still going to be closed. Most businesses can't have all of their staff there, blah, 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 blah. If you can do that and there is some sort of success and realistically, the, the be all end all of this is whether or not. Uh, med- medical institutions and, and the healthcare system becomes overwhelmed. If that doesn't happen, mm-hmm. that and there's a a more a more um, gradual, not necessarily increase. Well, yeah, I mean there would probably be an increase in cases, but a manageable increase in cases. You're going to need that over an entire population just going out a month from now or two months from now, where the vast vast majority of people haven't had the potential to be exposed. I, I, at some point, it, there, it's an inevitability that a huge portion of the population is going to be exposed to this. 
And the only recourse that we have at this point, again, because a vaccine is nowhere near in the future, is to have a healthcare system that can handle that yeah. and have treatments a little bit further down the road that can manage that. So I, 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 I don't necessarily agree with the political nature that a lot of these these uh, reengagements and reopening uh, reopenings are are taking. But I think that a more scientifically backed reopening from a different state or a different entity seems to be the only reasonable approach to this right now. And that doesn't, uh, yeah, that strikes me. It doesn't have to be political, right? I mean, you could, you could look at what's happening. We talked about Michigan last week and some of the more excessive rules to say, well, you, you can, some stores are open, some are not. So you can't buy grass. Well, that feels like you could adjust and you can say, all right, let's think about doing this in sensible ways, right? It doesn't have to come down to you know, individuals and guns uh, showing up in mass protests. Like, there are other ways to do this in a nonpartisan political way. And then you're seeing a lot of governors do that. Um, my fear is that there are going to be enough politicians looking to seize upon this where they won't. I mean, the the mayor of Las Vegas was on the, the, the news <laughs> and talking about one. they want to open up the casinos. <laughs> and they asked her, well, would you be on the floor? And she said something like to the effect of, God, no, I've got a family, right? <laughs> <laughs> You've got to see the hypocrisy here. You, you, it can't be just that it's, you know, that we're sacrificing low wage workers to go back and get this economy open again. Mm -hmm. the, the weird thing in all of this to me is going back to a topic we talked about last week, which is that the, the idea, the push to get reopen. I, I understand why Trump wants that, right? He needs a, an economy to be in recovery, um, you know, for, as he approaches the election. But there's a lot of stuff he could be doing that. I mean, in terms of like improving testing and all sorts of other stuff that he's he doesn't he doesn't seem to be willing to do any of that, which would actually speed this along. It's a yeah, strange done more tests than anybody in the world. Yeah, That's not true, Bill. <laughs> <laughs> so let me I, before we, I, I have kind of two sort of side related ideas to this that I'm I, I want to throw out there. And if either of them are interesting to you all, we can talk about them. W one of which is the Bill Barr thing. I mean, we've had presidencies who have opted not to defend, you know, laws or whatever the Obama with with marijuana or whatever. But this this is a little I mean, this is kind of weird. I mean, it feels like the Bill Barr thing is almost sending a signal to people, right? If you file lawsuits and there are, there are interesting and important questions in the midst of all of this about, you know, rights of freedom of assembly and all sorts of stuff that we've just haven't had time to wrestle with because we're, you know, we're, we're in whatever, um, we're in triage or whatever, but uh, there are important questions. I mean, it feels like the, the Trump administration is encouraging suits almost or encouraging people to, which is a weird thing. So there's, there's that aspect of it. And then there's the other part, the other aspect of this that, that I think is interesting is Trump's demeanor in general, in which his language, uh, he does a lot of talking. I mean, we've talked about this in previous weeks as well, but he does a lot of talking about how he is all powerful and has all of these, you know, power to, to reopen states and to do all of this other stuff. Uh, but largely he, he seems kind of uh, petulant, right? He seems like he's just kind of pissed that things aren't happening the way he wants them to. Um, that's a weird combination. It's not all that unique for Trump, I don't think, but it's a, it's strange to see him, the contrast right now between his image of himself as all powerful and the sort of, uh, 
I don't know, disgruntled kind of, you know, I'm, I'm, you know, why, why won't everybody just do what I say sort of thing. So, I mean, there's, there's kind of two aspects. The bar part may be more interesting, but, but I don't know. Are, are you interested in talking about either of those? Well, maybe Not start with the bar one. Okay. All right. Fair <laughs> enough. Let's move on. <laughs> the bar thing, I think in some ways they overlap with each other because I, I think you're right that we, we talked about this last week. Trump loves uh, powerful language. He loves to sound like a, a leader and in some ways a, a dictator and authoritarian, but he doesn't like to act that way. Now, what Barr is suggesting is a much, much more aggressive and powerful Department of Justice. I mean, essentially what he's saying is that if states pursue their own interest and, you know, if they believe, if a state believes it's, it's in their interest to continue with these social distancing measures, he is going to pursue litigation that would topple that. I mean, that is that is saying that the federal government is trumping states. So here you have a conservative administration saying we don't believe in states' rights anymore. I mean, With that's... Move, movements of people carrying Confederate flags talking about how states don't have the right to do this. Yeah, I mean, the yeah. irony of all of this is, is almost just is too thick. I was stunned by that. And I think I, I, I'm sure there's I don't know if there's a connect between Trump and Barr on this. I'm sure I'm sure not. But um, Barr believes in a powerful executive. And I it, it strikes me that they would lose that case. Right. If 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 this works its way to the Supreme Court, the Supreme Court would say this is not a power that the, the federal government has. Right. States have the ability to legislate and take care of their own people. I, I just, I, I was, of all things that have happened, that stunned me more than maybe others. But what happens when that runs into constitutionally protected things like assembly right. or religion or stuff like that? That's the interesting question. I think that's where Barr is coming from, right? Mm -hmm. Right. There's these, but don't, it, it's, yeah, true. But we're in a, if you're talking about a national emergency, now, again, the, 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 the emergency powers for the president are pretty extreme. I'm, I'm not sure what that means for governors, right? I don't know. I guess we, as we talked last week with Tom, it would come down to the state constitutions and how much power those state constitutions give to a governor. But it, it feels to me that in a moment of emergency, the center of gravity always falls to the the, the leader, right? The, the governor or the president. But I, I mean, sorry, Paul, go ahead. No, no I, I've talked enough. Go ahead. I'll um... I, I think that's good in theory, but we've talked about over the past few weeks that these these um, emergency powers, especially at uh, at the state level, are almost in terms of codification are almost non-existent. We have no we're in completely uncharted territory uh, at this point. So, yeah, I, I mean, I, I think that it, there's a, a potential for that to be the most effective system. But the way that it's being wielded in different states is all over the board. Some are are beyond excessive and others aren't doing anything. Um, and the realistically, the only thing that I feel like you have to fall back on is the, the federal constitution in terms of individual rights. Um, just because there is no, again, codification of, of anything uh, for this particular situation or how a governor should handle a complete shutdown of their individual states. So when we're talking about people not being able to uh, congregate or, you know, freedom of speech or, or, or uh, assembly or religion or, or anything like that, I think that calls into question a lot of things uh, that are being done currently. And the only thing that we do have a code on is is the federal constitution. So I, I, to me, that's the, the that should be the default position on everything. If you want to, to look at individual state constitutions and change this as this is going on or after this is over, be my guest, you know, use your legislative ability to do that. 
But yeah, until it, that's the case, I, you you're you're just kind of pulling this out of your ass. It just it strikes me the states. Okay, so Phil, as a good Texan, right, um, who believes in you know the, the Texans believe in states' rights. Do you think? I mean, this argument just seems so weird to me that that you're going to have a federal government telling states right that you you can't take care of your people. I mean, I, I know this is going to be flipped because it's going to be mostly re- Democratic states that the DOJ would be focused on. But wouldn't this be something that I don't know? It, in a in a vacuum that that the southern states would would lose their mind over. Uh, yes, in theory, but I mean, we have as we talk about this. I mean, I, I was jotting down like there are sort of several kind of core conservative legal principles that are like you know running into each other here, right? Which is states' rights. Also, the sort of strong executive, which has emerged in the last kind of 30 years of, of conservative politics, plus the partisanship element. Right. And you in this case, it plays out as a pro Trump, but it can be you know, that's the element as well. And that and that the Republican states are the ones that are going to be sort of opening up early. And so the idea that the federal I don't know that states like blue states are being oppressed in some way and the federal government should step in to do, I mean, it doesn't, none of it makes sense, but it, it, it would be interesting to see how it played out legally. Right. So, I mean, I think people think that the, a conservative Supreme court, I think most people, you know, think that the current iteration of the Supreme court is, you know, leans conservative, a conservative Supreme court is going to uphold states' rights, but also is going to tend to support executive power, particularly under the Trump administration. And so how, you know, how do you, when you have these two kind of, you know, uh, sacred cows or whatever, how do you handle something? I don't know. I don't know how it would play out. I just, I think that conservatives, what, what's left to conservative thought here? If, if you're, I, I don't know, I just feel like that you have to be careful the type of legislation you pursue because what's left to that argument of, of, of federalism once you say that in this case, you know, the federal government reigns supreme in, in a moment of emergency. I, and I, I think you're both right. It just bugs me because there should be some, some integrity to well, conservative thought. Well, and I think there's a difference here between conservatism and republicanism, right? right and so right. I mean, they overlap for some people, but for other people, they don't necessarily. Yeah. Uh, and I think that's where conservatism, you know, emphasizes the state's rights versus a, a, a strong executive. But the republicanism, the, especially with the partisanship the way it is, I, I think, you know, people pick and choose, right? I, I'm pissed in this moment at blue states who are stepping on people's rights. But when it turns around, the federal government, you know, sure as hell better not tell me what I can do in Texas or in Tennessee about abortion rights or whatever else. So, I mean, it, we like it doesn't just go the conservative way. Like we like to pick and choose our legal principles when they make sense for us. Well, And that's what's so weird about a pandemic. The coronavirus is that, you know, there, it, it's, it doesn't fit neatly into to our our buckets that we have for these these political issues because i mean in some ways this is an issue of life and, and you could say that this is you know states have the right i mean I, i'm thinking about the abortion debate here right? you know one of those central arguments is that states have the right to determine the laws regarding abortion this is not an issue for the federal government i, I don't know how much different this is for states to say we have the right to determine what is the safest course of action for our public whether that is to open up or whether that's to keep closed, right? I mean, these feel like decisions that states should be leading the charge on. But, but I, even I mean, that, yeah, I, like, I, 
Good to go ahead, Phil. <laughs> I was just going to even that has to happen within the confines of the Constitution, right? I mean, that's right. where there are limits on on abortion. You know, states have the ability to limit abortion within certain yeah. confines. Right. And that's always challenged anyways. It, it, it almost inevitably goes to the Supreme Court. Like, it, it, this is it, it, in the end. The only thing that we have to go back to is the, is the Constitution because it's going to end up there anyway. It's going to end up in the Supreme Court. And it's no. going to be these conversations about what does the 14th Amendment mean, you know, which gives power that the powers that aren't already given to the federal government or specifically given to the federal government fall back to the states. You know, they don't talk about a pandemic in the Constitution. So it may, you're right. It may come down to the courts giving us some guidance uh, where those outer boundaries of executive power are, state power. Um, yeah. And I guess that, that is that is useful. Uh, it would have useful marker. It would have been in the Constitution had China been uh, as effective at, as, as, at uh, creating um, viruses as they are now. But, you know, <laughs> times change. It's unfortunate. Yeah. I mean, they had pandemics going way back. This, the, you know, the yeah, but they were all we kind of, it's not everywhere, though. You know, yeah. So. <laughs> well, should we talk beer? Sure. Phil, Phil, you you are having an, an amazingly reviewed beer. So what's what's going on over there? Yeah, so I'm I'm having another. You know, my hookup here in Keene gives me great beer. <laughs> I'm a very lucky person. Uh, so this is another one from Hill Farmstead Brewery, which I've I've had last week. I've had a you know a number of these. Um, this is one that I've not had before. It's called Double Nelson. For those of you who are watching, I'll hold that up there. Mm. Um, so it's uh it's an Imperial IPA. It's brewed it's called double nelson because it is brewed only with nelson hops now i am not tom so i don't understand all the differences between what different hops taste like uh but yeah this is only nelson hops um it's you know <laughs> again everything i've had from hill farmstead has been really really good and this this continues that it is citrusy but it's not the you know some some ipas are like over the top citrusy and others are have more of that what did tom say resiny is the term like the mm -hmm. earthy flavor this is like right in the middle it's kind of you know kind of mm -hmm. got a buttery uh texture to it. it it's just really good it's got the it's got the citrus notes that i like um but it's not in your face excellent beer would would drink many many more of these mm. <laughs> sounds like a good one nick what about you um, well, Phil, you're still uh, holding the can uh, to the screen for me right now. Oh. So you've just been doing a, a, a <laughs> nice rubbing it for in them for the better part of, <laughs> of, of a minute, which is great. Um, I am having a uh, something from Solemn Oath. Uh, oddly enough, I, I tend to kind of shy away from their stuff, but I saw this in the store. Um, the uh, um, Russian supermarket uh, supermarket uh, breadline kind of uh, thing that that we all have to deal with now, um, but I saw this and had to get it. It's uh, it's an end all IPA with uh, a snake eating its own tail, which I thought was very appropriate. Um, yeah, it's um, it's good. It's uh, a fairly standard IPA, but it also has a uh, I, I don't know the best way to describe it a a kind of heavier um, dank kind of uh aftertaste um it, no, no it, it's it, it's not normally i i would agree with you this one this is, is good dank <laughs> <laughs> it's fairly subtle uh it gives it uh kind of a, a heavier um almost borderline sweet uh sharp sweetness to it um so it, it's definitely one of their better ones um their stuff i i generally think isn't the the greatest but this one i'm 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 kind of enjoying so 
Nice. Mm-hmm. Well, I am. Uh, I decided not to make a run to the liquor store given the coronavirus, so I'm enjoying some beer that I had in my fridge, which was a Blue Moon. Um, and uh, I've <laughs> never had, heard of that had, one. Uh-uh. Yeah. And now the only thing I'll quickly share. I mean, Blue Moon's a solid beer, right? It's uh, it's very drinkable. It's enjoyable. And I remember, so uh, Phil and I did grad school at the University of Colorado, and there were a couple summers where we would get uh, tickets to Rockies games. We would get like 20 pack tickets. And the first time we had Blue Moon is when they were brewing it in this little brewery in um, Coors Field. So they did it there and it wasn't, you know, it just, it did really well there. And that's what caused them to mass produce it. So I remember, you know, Phil and I, we go way back when it comes to Blue Moon. So, you know, solid beer. I'm I'm having it with an orange because I'm doing it the right way. And uh, yeah, good do you remember when we were in Colorado and Coors had the mishap where they accidentally dumped like millions of gallons of beer <laughs> into the creek and killed like millions of fish? I still use that example in my class when I talk about environmental policy. <laughs> I don't understand how that happens. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was and it wasn't just like eight fish. It was thousands of fish. That died. Um, yeah, no, Coors, uh, that was not their their best moment. So uh, but yeah, Blue Moon, solid beer. Enjoy it. Uh, good memories of, of going to baseball games in, in Colorado. You got to mix that with a little bit of ice cream and a little bit of uh, I think it's Contro uh, and some. Yeah, uh, doing a, a little Great. Blue Moon shake thing. Uh, yeah. Cool. And um, yeah, it's it's damn good. So definitely check that out i've done it where like some of the irish pubs will mix it with guinness mm-hmm. uh, Guinness and blue moon which is also kind of a tasty combination as well mm-hmm. but this is quarantine so it's ice cream so that's, oh, that's yeah. what we're focused on i'm just glad we're plugging the micro brews <laughs> <laughs> of course um anyways if you guys want to check out the beers we have on the podcast uh you can find us on untapped on ios or android just search for uh, barstool politics on there and you'll find our reviews all right time for some speed round yes sir On Monday, President Trump tweeted that he intended to close the United States to people trying to immigrate into the country, saying he wanted to protect American workers from foreign competition as the nation's economy looks to recover from the coronavirus outbreak. Specifically, he tweeted, quote, in light of the attack from the invisible enemy, as well as the need to protect jobs of our great American citizens, I will be signing an executive order to temporarily suspend immigration into the United States, unquote. In recent weeks, the Trump administration moved to expand travel restrictions, slowed visa processing and moved to swiftly bar asylum seekers and undocumented immigrants from entering the country. Yet the president's late night announcement on Monday signals his most wide ranging attempt yet to seal off the country from the rest of the world. A former a formal order temporarily barring the provision of new green cards and work visas could come as early as the next few days. And I think I want to say that it even finalized it today. Uh, I feel like our opening topic, this feels like a return to the tactics Trump utilized during the 2016 presidential campaign. What's your reaction to all of this? Uh, Well, first of all, I think we should take a moment and just appreciate the fact that we live in a country where the president tweeted (laughs) out that insane tweet in light of the attack (laughs) from the invisible enemy. Mm -hmm. (sighs) Anyway... (laughs) <laughs> uh, we, we, we're in prison, Phil. We can't notice those things anymore. I know. I, it's really it was remarkable how far we've come in three and a half years. Uh, yeah, it would. Be, yeah, I, I imagine if we could go back in time and tell three and a half year ago us about what actually happens in the Trump administration, I'm not sure we would believe it. No. Um, so, I mean, I again, 
from a public health standpoint, my, I, I'm not a public health person, but my understanding from listening and reading stuff is that travel restrictions uh, to some extent are good, right? I mean, most countries have employed some sort of travel restriction, you know, within, within Europe, between Europe, international travel is limited. So I don't know that travel restrictions in and of themselves are necessarily, you know, a, a red flag or alarm bell going off. Uh, this does, I mean, this is where it sort of dovetails really nicely with things that Trump seems to care about immigration has he's been sort of looked for reasons uh to curb immigration throughout his administration at least Stephen you know Stephen Miller or whatever has um uh so uh, you know I, I I don't I'm not sure I I'm not encouraged by this it seems like from what I saw today what he said is it's like a two-month pause basically I, I don't know that in the long run it's actually going to amount to much um but uh Anyway, I, I I do think that largely this has to be interpreted through the lens, like you said, of going back to our first topic, which is that it feels like Trump is facing a crisis that doesn't respond to his usual tactics, the the sort of rhetorical attacks, the sort of partisanship stuff, the cards that he has played in the past. Um, you know, a virus doesn't go away just because he attacks the media or whatever. And so I, it feels a little bit like he's at a loss for what to do. He doesn't he doesn't understand the presidency. I don't think the way other other presidents have. And it feels to me like this is him going back to his greatest hits. This has worked in the past. Um, I my popularity numbers are falling. I'm going to hit on the things that have that have, you know, won people over to me in the past. I don't know that it's going to work in this particular moment. I feel like people who are anti-immigration are already on board with Trump. They're not likely to be, you know, lost in the next six months. And so uh, I think he needs to be winning over people who are concerned about the coronavirus. And I, and I, you know, it's not being spun that way. I think most people see this as just an, an attack on immigration. Mm -hmm. Nick, what's your take? Um, realistically, the, the sentiment of this, I don't necessarily have a problem with it. Um, I, I, I think that this will, you know, it, it's, it's a two month pause. I don't think that this is a policy that, uh, could ever, uh, remain in place for a longer period of time, uh, or under any other circumstances. What I find a little bit troubling about it is the timing of it and the inclusion of the other rhetoric that's kind of been surrounding it. It's been, uh, talk about the wall and how secure that is, uh, talking about uh, um, discussions with the Mexican president about illegal immigration, things like that. Um, I think had this been put in place initially when we stopped travel from China, uh, when uh, other international flights and international travel had been uh, banned or, or suspended for the time being, I think there would have been um, greater support for it. Uh, I, again, this is an administration that I don't necessarily always, always, or I always think that, um, has the, the nuance of, of governing down even after almost four years. Um, I, I, I it's, it's just bad timing. I, again, I, I don't, I don't disagree with, with what they're doing. They, they needed to take a harder look about, um, what they were planning on doing at, at this particular moment. This, this was a bad move in my opinion. Yeah. It, it feels a lot like, like, like Phil said, the greatest hits, it feels like going back to 2016, uh, the Muslim ban. It has, it feels like all of that. He feels like that'll mobilize the base. 
you know, they're, they're smart in the sense that they're making this as an economic argument. We want to make sure that Americans get the job, uh, making it a public health argument, you know, the idea that you want to keep people safe. And yeah, fine, that that has some traction, but that's not what's really going on here. The deeper motivation is Stephen Miller and Trump, who are, you know, have for a long time wanted to limit both legal and illegal uh, immigration. So that's to me, that's what's really going on here. I'm not sure whether it works to Phil's point. I think people are tired of this argument. Um, it will be a talking point. I mean, he will use this over and over again. He continues to talk about the wall uh, and what's going on there. I, I just I just seeing it as another instance of, of rhetoric, but not really mattering in terms of policy. I don't I don't think it's it's going to help at all with the coronavirus. If anything, it might hurt the economy. You're seeing some business people saying that, um, you know, they're very worried about this. Uh, he was quick to say that this wouldn't affect uh, laborers coming into work, the farms. Right. right. I mean, he's, so there's going to be all sorts of exceptions here. Right. So if there's all sorts of exceptions, why, why do it other than the the political hammer that he can continue to hit, which is, you know, I'm building a wall and I'm tough on immigration, which which mm-hmm. is right. I mean, it, it is full of Fox News was talking about it today and we're mentioning that apparently there's like openings or holes or exemptions for like au pairs and stuff like that, which is is then in the end, not all that different from the current green. I mean, if you're going to get a green card, you have to prove that there are no Americans that actually are qualified for the job in order to get it. So, I mean, there there are those sorts of things are already in place. And so it does feel like this is a rhetorical thing. I, I wonder as we move closer to the election, how much Four, three and a half years of Trump essentially expelling anyone who disagreed with him comes back to bite him in this in the end. And that if, if he's surrounded by essentially people who are his base, right, then the idea that this is going to be a winning argument, um, you know, you're convinced of it if everyone around you thinks that immigration is the winning argument, when in fact, it seems to be maybe it's not out of touch with the American people, but I don't know that it's as winning of an argument as they might think it is. Yeah, no, that's an, I hadn't thought about that. The other thing to think about is, um, instit- so Phil and I are in institutions of higher ed. This is very troubling for schools who who have a lot of international students. So you have international students who are here or potentially coming here uh, that are very worried. And big state schools who have a high number of international students who, who right. pay a lot of tuition. Like those, again, those are real economic impacts uh, that... Again, Trump doesn't think about all the nuances to this when he when he tweets this out. And apparently he caught the administration off guard. You know, he was just doing a nightly tweet thing again. And everybody's like, oh, crap. Now we got to clean up and get ready for tomorrow. <laughs> and, and there are repercussions otherwise as well. And that other countries are likely to respond. Right. If we shut yeah. down immigration, other countries are going to shut down immigration from Americans going overseas as well. And yeah. Yeah. Yep. All right, let's move on and go international. So uh, yesterday or a couple days ago, CNN reported that North Korean leader Kim Jong-un was in grave danger after surgery. Uh, South Korean media has previously reported that Kim had heart surgery, but few details about his condition are known. Speculation about Kim's health was fueled when he did not appear at a recent celebration for his grandfather and state founder, Kim Il-sung. South Korea has downplayed the concern, saying everything appears to be normal and that it has seen no unusual activity out of North Korea. Yet the incident raises the questions of if something did happen to Kim, who would be the heir? The mystery surrounding Kim Jong-un's health exposes deep uncertainty about North Korea's line of succession uh, more than eight years after he took power. While the Kim family has ruled for seven decades by passing power between male heirs, likely other hereditary dynasties, um, the 36-year-old Kim has no named successor. His own children are too young, so much attention has turned to his young sister, his personal assistant and likely closest aide, uh, Kim Yo-jung. Phil, our listeners know that you spent four years in a North Korean prison after you attempted after your attempted ping pong diplomacy went wrong. Worth uh, it. What's your, <laughs> yeah, what's your <laughs> sense of what might be playing out in North Korea now? 
Uh, I, I mean, my sense is that nobody knows what the hell's going on at North Korea right now. I mean, it, it seems like, uh, yep. you know, the the some of the reports that he was in grave health, maybe dying. Uh, there were a limited number of sources, but they were well-placed sources. I, I mean, I think the fact of the matter is North Korea is such a closed off society that even well-informed people don't necessarily know what's going on, which is why you have differing reports from South Korea and other places. There's evidence that says that he's in bad shape. The fact that he didn't show up for his grandfather's birthday is a huge deal in North Korea. But it sounds like there's not necessarily chatter or movements or whatever that indicate that something really major is happening either. So it's unclear. Um, Now, what happens if he dies is a really interesting question. Um, And I don't again, I don't know that anybody really knows that because his sister would be the obvious choice. But it's a pretty patriarchal society. So a woman in charge doesn't seem likely. I've seen a number of people say he has, I guess, several half brothers uh, that could potentially come in. But when he came to power, I mean, there was a, there were, he, he had to consolidate power violently. Like he had members of his family executed because in order to sort of fend off challenges to his power. So, and half brothers, right? I mean, we talked about, the, the the brother at the in the airport who was poisoned yeah mm. kim jong nam right was that, was that yeah yeah um so yeah the, i the, yeah i mean i think i think it would probably especially in a situation like this where there isn't a clear line of succession i it could potentially get really ugly um which could change north korea or it could just you know push north korea even further into this kind of closed off uh system yeah <laughs> <laughs> uh, sorry, I don't know if you want me to go or you add something. No, no go ahead. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. I, I, I think that from the outside, there isn't a clear line of succession. But from within North Korea, they do have a, a code, which is a literal Ten Commandments of the way that the, that the, the, uh, the state is supposed to be run. And one of those codes, I think it's, I, I don't know if it's number 10 or somewhere, I don't know, um, says that it's specific, the leader of the country specifically has to be from the bloodline of the Mount Pektu bloodline or something, which is where Kim Il-sung started his, his revolution, which that isn't even true. Um, so it has to be someone from with, realistically from within that family. Um, his older brother, obviously they killed his younger brother, uh, they refer to as a sissy, so he's probably not going to be the one to do it. Um, yeah, his sister seems like a, a, a likely candidate, but you have to also think about that this is the most, probably the most authoritarian, repressive government on the planet, secretive government on the planet. Um, if they want someone in there, or if there is a good candidate, they're going to say that it's coming from that particular bloodline. I don't think it necessarily it will will be his sister. There are plenty of other people that are close to uh, uh, Kim Jong Un, or uh, that the generals could pick after this. That could potentially be a reformer, or could potentially be a hardliner, depending on what mood that they're in, and just say that it comes from that particular bloodline. Yeah, we have no idea what's going to happen. Um, personally, I'd be more interested to, to know how many coronavirus cases that they have, because apparently it's still zero. But yeah, um, yeah <laughs> at, at this point, it's uh, 
you know, it's it's completely up in the air. And whatever they say, whoever does come out, I'm sure it will be a, a long lost brother that we know nothing about. And, you know, who just kind of materialized out of thin air or something. Or it'll be a reincarnation of somebody else. I can't believe you would question North Korea's connection to truth. Come on, Nick. <laughs> when you were talking about the rules, I thought I thought one of them was going to be you don't talk about Fight Club, right? I mean, that feels like it's That's probably in there somewhere. I didn't check all of them, but yeah. This feels, I don't know if people have seen this movie, but The Death of Stalin. Mm. Um, oh, fantastic. Really, really, really funny movie. Uh, and in some ways, it, it mimics real life. When Stalin died, nobody knew what to do. It was right. just sort of chaos because the, the great leader had dominated all aspects of society. And I think Kim Jong-un has done that. Now, he is not Stalin-like. I mean, he is, I think, probably not anywhere near as effective in terms of his brutality as Like Stalin. 150 pounds heavier. Yeah, the was actually pretty tiny. Um, So my sense is that if he were to die or be in really, really bad health, it all hell would break loose. There would be chaos, you know, military. I'm guessing it would not stay in the family anymore unless his sister is really, really ruthless. But um, yeah, like like both of you, I think this is a really fascinating topic, especially because, or specifically because they have nuclear weapons. This is a big, big deal when you have an essentially failed totalitarian state with nuclear weapons and you're talking about a dramatic shift in power it's it's a big deal mm-hmm. oh north korea they're always fun to talk about <laughs> yeah i guess one final thing before we move on did you notice that so trump was asked a foreign policy question about you know north korea china iran and uh he trashed iran talked about how terrible iran is and then when he was talking about North Korea and Kim Jong-un, he said he was, you know, just hoped he was doing well and was really worried about his health. And again, it's so weird that we have these two nemesis and one Trump is talking about how he hopes the guy gets better. And Kim Jong-un is a terrible, terrible person, you know, but he's saying, oh, I hope it gets better. And Iran, which is also suffering through coronavirus, he's like, ah, you know, a plague on their house. It's just a weird, weird well, I mean, time. They've had a very, you know, him and Kim have had a very on again, off again kind of relationship. And Iran just never calls back. And, you know, it's, it's, it's true. It's, yeah. very, it's very complicated. <laughs> They're not in love. Yeah. So. All right. Sticking with international news, American warships sailed in disputed waters in the South China Sea this week. The action is likely to sharpen the rivalry between the United States and China. While much of the world is on lockdown because of the coronavirus, experts are suggesting that China has deliberately intensified its activities in the South China Sea. Last month, China opened two new research stations on artificial reefs, and over the weekend, it announced that it had formally established two new districts in the South China Sea that include dozens of contested islets and reefs. The New York Times did a story on these developments and quoted Professor Alexander Vuying, a specialist on the topic, saying, quote, it seems that even as China was fighting a disease outbreak, it was also thinking in terms of its long term strategic goals. The Chinese want to create a new normal in the South China Sea where they are in charge. And and to do that, they've become more and more aggressive, unquote. Uh, This raises a number of really important questions for the United States. The U.S. has consistently argued it is a Pacific power, yet that may not be enough. The U.S. may need to think about how and whether it wants to balance China's increasingly hegemonic behavior. Phil, it's telling that in the midst of an arguably the world's biggest crisis in decades, China is looking to seize upon the situation to expand its power. Uh, what are your thoughts on this? I, yeah, I mean, as, a, as sort of international relations people, we, I feel like we think about this a lot. I, we there are really kind of two dimensions to what's going on in the in the world right so the, the there's this very short term immediate concern which is coronavirus and what's happening in kind of this week in news or what's going to happen in the next 2 months 
But from an IR perspective, they're always this like larger scale, long term, you know, like the like the like the article you quoted, long term strategic goals that are going on. Um, we talked about this a few weeks ago when we talked about China providing, uh, you know, medical supplies and doctors to other countries around the world. And China clearly is thinking long term. It seems like opposed to Trump's DNA to think long term, right? He is thinking about the here and now. He's thinking about right now. And this is a theme that has played out throughout the Trump presidency. I mean, we could go back to the very beginning and talk about Trump's you know, attacks on NATO. In the short term, that makes sense. NATO powers aren't paying, you know, aren't spending as much as they should on on defense. There is a short term argument for the approach he's taking. But there's also a long term you know, argument that has to be taken into account about you know, large term, long term strategic interests about alliances and about the state of international relations. And it feels like certainly Trump, I mean, but I think Trump sort of exemplifies American politics in a lot of ways and that we as, you know, Americans in general, you know, whether whatever, whoever that politician is, tends to we've kind of quit thinking that long term. I mean, it was a hallmark of the post-war post-World War II era, this long-term thinking about building alliances and structuring the international system and investing in places around the world knowing that it, the payoff may not come for a long time. And that we've seemed to have moved past that. And I, there's a, a real opportunity for China here. I, I mean, I, the the fact that the U.S. is in some way challenging some of these moves by China, I think is is interesting, and it shows the extent to which bureaucracy and the military continues to sort of function independently of of Trump. But um, yeah, I mean, I, I, as we navigate coronavirus, it's it's where we have to be doing. Are we, you know, again from a political science perspective, there are the short term concerns, but there's also this like, how do we emerge in the in terms of the in the eyes of the world as we as we come out of this. Yeah, it's it's that's well said. It's it's revealing, Nick. Right, that this is all we're all panicked about our our future and our lives and whatnot. And China's like expanding into the South China Sea. Yes, they're pieces of shit. Yes, it's, it's quite <laughs> revealing. Yeah, I, I I mean, this should come to is is no surprise to 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 anyone. Uh, yeah, China sent uh, medical equipment and supplies around the world, a lot of which was faulty or didn't work. Um, and either had to be sent back and millions of dollars were, were uh, billions of dollars were spent on it in the end. If we're talking about the uh, the the global total, um, they clearly don't give a shit about their citizens while they're they're dealing with this. Uh, they lied about the total numbers of coronavirus cases in the country, uh, which still is nowhere near accurate, I would assume. Uh, and I think most people would assume at this point, I would hope they would assume Um and then you have territorial expansion into areas that they were expanding into prior to this without any sort of acknowledgement that there is a larger crisis going on here, knowing that everybody else is so focused on their people that they can do whatever the hell that they want. And there's going to be no pushback. This needs to be a point, especially from an economic standpoint, uh, that the, U the U.S. needs to divest from China significantly. Uh, most Western nations need to divest from China significantly and then increase military pressure on them. It, it, it has to be done because they, they, they're completely out of control. They're, uh, they're, they're dangerous to global society. They don't care where I, I agree that the U S was, uh, exceptionally interested in creating alliances and creating a global system after world war two, but it was based upon, uh, economic opportunity as opposed to, 
stripping areas of their vital resources and not giving a shit about the people that it was affecting. You know, we did that in a more nuanced way. And, but <laughs> right. right. <laughs> you can't be so blatant about it. That's why they're bad more than anything. I love that caveat, Nick. That's perfect. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I, I something they I think the way that they have conducted themselves over the past, especially the past decade, and certainly uh, during the course of this pandemic is reprehensible and something more drastic needs to be done about it. Yeah, I think they're behaving the way great powers behave, right? And it's it's not it's not always pretty. Uh, I mean, it reminds me a bit of, you know, you made the comparison to the United States, Nick, like the Monroe Doctrine, right? Basically, where the United States says, this is our area, get out. Um and, and the other thing that strikes me is I think you're you're right, Nick, that the United States needs to think about how they're going to confront China. I don't know if containment, like if we go back to the Cold War, I don't think that grand strategy works. But we no. certainly need some type of grand strategy. And I think that's been absent, not just in the Trump administration, but you could talk about the Obama administration, the George W. Bush. We've been uncertain how to understand China's rise. Are they a competitor? And I, I don't think that necessarily talking about moving into a war is, is, is a good solution. But there has to be more, I don't know, a better plan. And I think some of that might depend on reaching out to allies in the area. I mean, there, there's a real opportunity to build a relationship with those Pacific powers. The Trans-Pacific Partnership was one potential way, and we threw that down the toilet. So, yeah, I think something has to happen. And I, I feel like we're not really thinking about what that might look like. But to get, uh, we're gonna. I'm gonna get all, you know, real. I'm gonna get all IR for a second. I mean, yeah. this is classic realism, right? I mean, yep. like the idea of realism and that morals don't matter. All that matters yeah. is survival. Because if you're dead, you know, you can do the right thing all you want, but if you're dead, it doesn't matter. I mean, this is this is where China is acting as a realist, right? They're doing, they're they're pushing the limits where they need to. They're they're trying to expand their power and their security and all sorts of other things. The part that's interesting to me is that realism has not always, but has been largely kind of associated with Republicans, right? And, and to see, you know, I, I, don't, I don't know, the, 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 to not see sort of a pushback or even a recognition of what China is doing and how to counter that is, is sort of interesting. I, I, again, I don't, I, I don't know what to make of all of that. But uh, I think there, there's a fear of escalating too much, right? You don't want to have an interaction. So there's and again, there's there's good reason to be cautious. And and the United States is the only power that is challenging China and these reefs. We're the only ones that are setting these warships through. So it's something. It's just not enough to to deter China at this point. Well, but for, I, mean, I mean, in America, the golden days are the Cold War, especially for, you know, and, and the idea of confronting a big state like who who is expansionist. It didn't scare, you know, like we were willing to do it and risk. I'm not saying we should, but we were willing to risk, you know, nuclear war over it with 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 Russia. And so it's weird to see the I I, I don't know. I mean, maybe the, the nature of economics and, and inner, uh, you know, the intertwining of our economies matters as well. I'm, I'm not encouraging us to have a military confrontation. <laughs> I'm just sort of inter it's interesting to me the extent to which this hasn't provoked any sort of response from really any significant camps within the U.S. I, I, I know you guys aren't going to like this, but I, as much as those alliances and the the global system that we created has benefited us, it's seems to have benefited China, especially over the past decade or two, probably more than than uh, than the U.S. Um, and if we're going to talk about conservative standpoints uh, or Republican standpoints, I would think that economic opportunity trumps uh, uh, military confrontation um, pretty much any day of the week. So if, if we're talking about 
the the country that is primary primarily responsible for our manufacturing, uh, retail elements, uh, a good portion of intellectual uh, property and, and development um, to try and negate that, I think is going to get a lot more pushback in Republican circles than Democratic circles. But they're communists, Nick. Yeah, we know. <laughs> That's why a lot of rich communists are okay. Bill, you're making my point. <laughs> That's why this shit needs to be dissolved completely. All right, let's move on and talk about something we've never talked about before on the podcast metaphors uh <laughs> we use metaphors to help make sense of the world around us and the metaphor we have seen widely or used widely to understand the coronavirus is war we are fighting a war against an invisible enemy our medical professionals are soldiers on the front line trump for example has described himself as a wartime president and tweeted quote with the grace of god we will win this war and that quote the enemy will, will soon be in retreat now, Trump isn't the only politician to use the war metaphor when talking about the coronavirus. Many governors and other politicians have as well. The war metaphor is powerful and has been used regularly by politicians, whatever the situation. Yet, I don't think we've always spent enough time thinking about whether we're using the right metaphor. In this instance, is war the best way to think about and confront a global pandemic? My interest in this was sparked by an article written by Al Alyssa Wilkers uh, Wilkinson, who is a film critic for Vox. She wrote a thought-provoking piece oh, suggesting Jesus. that pandemic, yeah, 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 <laughs> are not wars, and therefore there are better metaphors or no metaphors to describe what's happening right now. I'll tweet out the link to the article if our listeners are interested. So, if you two will indulge me, let's spend a few minutes thinking about the appropriateness of the war metaphor. Phil, you and I have spent a lot of time in the past discussing the significance that the war metaphor played for efforts to confront terrorism. What do you think about the applicability to a pandemic? Uh, I find this really interesting. I don't know if you had this in mind when you put this topic on here, but uh, you know, I, I still use in my foreign policy class an article that you, I think, brought to my attention years ago about the Vietnam War and the power of analogies oh, yeah. in shaping yeah. the Vietnam War. So you know, early on, we, we used one analogy. We, we sort of looked to Malaya and the British occupation of Malaya after World War II, and, and then we changed to sort of thinking of Vietnam through the lens of, of the Korean War. Uh, the history of all of that doesn't matter, but the, the lesson of that of that uh, piece is that, you know, the analogy you choose really matters. Analogies help us sort of make sense of the world, but it also um, sort of dictates how we respond. So if we think of something, you know, if we think of a war as the Korean War, it tells us, you know, how do we respond? What worked in Korea? We should do that again. And so analogies are really, really important. Um, and, and, you know, metaphors are the same thing. Uh, so, <laughs> oh, you pissed off all the English professors. I know, in the I know. World. I know. <laughs> <laughs> um, but anyway, the the I, I, I this is I think really interesting thinking about war. So I was thinking about how you're right. We have talked about this as a war. The politicians have talked about it as war. Governors have. It's not just a Trump thing. And I, thinking about how that might affect us is is kind of interesting. I, I think in some ways it is a good analogy in that. You know, it requires this collective action. It requires, you know, the sort of national unity that is required by a war effort. Um, that's what we need, right? Whether it's whether it's the production of materials or whether it's people sacrificing, right, for the collective good. I'm going to do this thing that I don't want to do because of this greater good that I'm trying to achieve. All of that, I think, makes sense. And in that sort of motivation, mobilization part, I think is good. But there are places where the analogy falls short. And I think about like, uh, and, and I think the article that you sent talks a little bit about this, which is that 
when we're at war, there is this determination to not let the enemy win, right? I think about September 11th and this idea of we're not, if, if we alter our life, we've let the terrorists win, right? We have to go on with life as is. And I see a little bit of that in these protests, right? Like we're going to, we're going to, we're not going to let the virus win. In that sense, the virus is not an enemy in the same sense, right? The virus doesn't give a, doesn't give a shit what we do. Um, we're not showing the virus by continuing with our life. So that, that like tendency in a war effort to be like, I'm not going to change to, to sort of prove a point, that is, that's really problematic. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, a public health crisis is different than a war. And, and so it's not bad to use the analogies, but we need to be aware of their limitations. Yeah, that, that was kind of one of the things that prompted. I hadn't thought about that article about analogies, but it really fits really, really well. The, to sort of build on that case, you know, when you think about if you use the war metaphor, there's got to be an enemy. Um, and obviously, like the virus is not good, but it's not an enemy in the sense that you're not fighting this. Oh, you are, I guess. But that's again, we're stuck in these metaphors, right? Uh, it, you have to find an enemy. So you're seeing Trump doing a pretty good job of finding enemies. The enemy is China. The enemy is the Democrats. The enemy are governors, right? I mean, so I, I think using those metaphors oftentimes allows politicians to to pursue agendas which may not be allowable if they use a different analogy or a different metaphor. Um, Nick, I don't know. You like rhetoric? What's What do you think about all this? <laughs> you like Put rhetoric? Put us two naive academics in our place. Come on. Yeah, yeah. Are, are we being overly nerdy? So you are being overly nerdy. <laughs> <laughs> I'm pretty sure your uh, your your wife came into uh, into chat, Phil, and just said hi, nerds. So yeah, yeah, you're nerds. Um, this this is. I, I I frankly think you guys are looking into this a little a little too much. Um, we got time, Nick. We got time it's it, it, you know, it, I, like I get it. it the, the, in these particular situations, yes, I think that metaphors can hamper our ability to think outside of the box. But considering that the situation itself is completely outside of the box to begin with, we have to find some way of defining how we conduct ourselves. Um, I think metaphors are important in this particular situation. We just don't have a good foundation of how we should operate. So people are going to put their individual spin on the most likely or, or most uh, uh, succinct and uh, applicable metaphor that they can think of at the time. And realistically, the best thing that you can have in this situation is a metaphor uh, in regards to war. You do need collective action. You, you do need some sort of, um, movement uh, from the wider population to do something with this. But the way that it's being wielded from different sides, especially in the political climate that we're in, it makes no difference. War is different for everybody at this point. Every point is different for everybody uh, at this point. Um, so, I, I, yeah, I, I think that looking into the depth of, of the war metaphor right now um, isn't it, it isn't applicable and i can't wait for vox to go under more than anything so. <laughs> I, but, but why do we always go to the war i mean i think about it, it's not again it's not just here part of this is i'm tired of tired of the war metaphor i mean even with terrorism yeah. we talked about a war on terrorism we could have talked about terrorism as a crime and that's a very different understanding we're fighting wars on poverty on drugs on cancer right why can't we come up with another metaphor it really i mean in some ways the war metaphor sucks and we're like oh new challenge 
let's fight a war against a pandemic. But it's, that's stupid. It's a stupid application of a metaphor. I'm very upset about it. <laughs> I think we're we're all basically. I think I think we're all basically on the same page, even though we don't. Because because your point is right, Nick, which is that there's nothing else. Like this is unprecedented, and so we have to latch on to the thing that helps us understand it as best we can. Which is, you know, in that sense, the war analogy is useful, but it's also where we have to realize that it's not exactly a war, and so we have to adjust accordingly. Also, I thought you were just making fun of me when you said my wife popped in and said hi, nerds. But I just I looked, not- and she did. She loved. She loves me. She does love me. <laughs> oh, thank you, gentlemen. For, that was fun. I'm happy. So, <laughs> all right, our final talk, uh, topic tonight. Uh, on Tuesday, the United Kingdom approved the continuation of democracy via a virtual parliament, a remarkable and unanim- unanimous vote to overturn the way things have been done for over 700 years and to keep on arguing but at a proper distance. Moving forward, the British Parliament will use hybrid proceedings where only 50 of the 650 elected members will be allowed to enter the chamber at one time. Another 120 members will be allowed to participate remotely via teleconference. Voting will also take place remotely. In the new virtual democracy, the tradition of heckling from the back benches will no longer take place because you can't do that over Zoom. Can't you just hit the Uh, raise your hand button like over and over and over again? Just type you suck into chat? Oh, that would be okay. Well, we've seen a variety of governing institutions move virtual. Seeing an institution like the British Parliament move to Zoom feels like a historic move. Phil, as a comparativist, you have a deep appreciation of the history of the British democracy. What's your reaction to this virtual democracy? Uh, you know, I, I'm sort of torn on this. I, I think that, the, I mean, this is a huge, this is a really big thing. I, it, it's hard to overstate the importance of sort of tradition and symbolism, particularly in the British model of democracy. I mean, they still line when they vote, they still go out and line up in the hall and walk basically on which side they want to vote. Um, you know, there's a lot of tradition, the mace that we've talked about before that has to be in place for the parliament. To, I mean, the queen, when she I speaks spoke. to parliament, still gets like rejected. Like she comes and knocks on the door and the, the speaker of the of, of the house yells at her and tells her to go away. Like tradition really matters. And that symbolism is really important. At the same time, we've also talked on here about how the British system is in some ways flexible. I mean, it is not a written constitution. It's designed to be, I mean, you know, it is a system that is weird to Americans in that the law, the parliamentary law is the supreme law. And so parliament, you know, whatever parliament says goes. And so even though there is this importance of tradition, there's also this willingness to, to change or to adapt to modern times. This seems like an appropriate time for this. I I don't have any doubt that when this time passes, they will revert to their old traditions and go back to the way things were. And and this is, you know, this seems like British sensibility in a lot of ways. It's an interesting contrast to, I, I haven't seen a whole lot about it, but Mitch McConnell has adamantly refused to do this, right? We're not going to, to meet um, virtually. We live in a world of, of, like this business and life happens online. The idea of not in some way adapting to it or accepting the technological and scientific advances that we have seems contrarian. So I, you know, I want to be somewhere in the middle. I think the, the, the history and the tradition matters, but it also makes sense to, to adjust when, when, it, when adjustment is called for. Mm-hmm. Mitch can't do uh, uh Skype or, or zoom on a jitterbug. <laughs> so yeah. <laughs> 
<laughs> it just has the one for family and help. Yeah. Just two buttons. Mm-hmm. You can't do democracy that way. <laughs> no, I, I think it does speak to the generational divide here. And, and again, you know, I, I, I'm surprised. I think well, the Supreme Court is moving to some virtual process. Yeah. And I, I think that's what you have to do for a short period of time. I don't think it undermines democracy. I think it creates unique ways. I was, I was, uh, uh, interacting with a student today who's from the United Kingdom and saying that like these Zoom uh, sessions are going to be public. So more people may be able to see them than the ones when they're just on television. So mm-hmm. there are some good things that come from it. And you you, you deal. We're, we're podcasting at a social distance. This is what you do and you and you move on. And this, uh, is, this is at least as important as the British democracy. Right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> we have the same number of viewers. I would think. <laughs> can't wait till those calls get Zoom bombed. That's going to be whole. <laughs> well, that, that's the thing, you know, I, mm-hmm. And it also reveals some, I don't know, I guess some courage. Uh, I'm sure all of you have had meetings that on Zoom or whatever, you know, go to meeting that are just disasters where, you know, people can't figure out how to raise their hand or they can't unmute. And, you know, good on the British for at least trying this. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um. I, I, yeah, I, this seems like a completely reasonable, sensible thing to do at this point. The fact that there is so much argument about it in our political system is completely asinine. Um, yeah. This this negates the 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 theatrics of having to have people there and doing a roll call vote and all of that nonsense. Um, and we can actually get things done more effectively. Yeah, I, I, again, as much as the British system will almost certainly go back to the traditional way of operating. There's no reason to think that the, uh, that Congress wouldn't be able to do the same, same thing or, or wouldn't do the same thing. Um, just the fact that there is so such a willingness to break this down in terms of uh, uh, political allegiance here and, and turn it into a, an argument against the other party uh, is just, it makes absolutely no sense to me. This should have been something that should have been in place long before this pandemic ever happened. Um, because it's more important, right? right? I mean, the votes have to happen and it should be done no matter what, like if you can't, there's, there's lots of reasons why you couldn't get people to, to Washington, D.C., no, I just don't think that they do that their jobs and they don't want us to know about it. <laughs> Frankly. Um, yeah, this this needs to be I think this this needs to be a, a bigger movement domestically. Um, and I'm not really sure why it's not. Besides the fact that we're we're distracted by everything else right now. <laughs> but when you think about it, it's it's rare that in the U.S. Uh, c- uh, Congress, there are most people are not there anyhow. Right. I mean, so when you know, when you're giving a speech in the House, usually there's like three people there. So it's not like. There is this, you know, great discourse back and forth. I mean, a lot of this could be done remotely. And but you're right. It would require 70 and 80 year olds to figure out technology. And, you know, that's not happening. Sacrifice the week. Shout out to all our 80 year old listeners. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my goodness. Well, thanks, guys. That was fun. That was fun. Yeah, as always. Um, if uh, thanks to everybody who was uh, on the, the the live feed, um, we appreciate that. Um, I have to really look at these things. There's a lot of comments actually that I didn't pay attention to. <laughs> Sorry, guys. I'll do better next time. Um, but anyways, if you guys uh, want to see what we're up to, um, comment on anything, ask a question, anything like that. Follow us on Twitter at Barstool Paul P O L. 
Facebook uh, at Barstool Politics, where you will find uh, all of our live shows, which we do every week around 4.30 Central. Um, the podcast you can find on Spotify, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Google Play Music, most major podcasting platforms. Uh, Beers We Trade you can find on Untapped on iOS or Android. Just search for Barstool Politics on there. Uh, our merch line uh, is on teespring.com. You'll find direct links on our social channel, so definitely check that out. Uh, and then I think next week we're going to be able to uh, do the live stream on Facebook and YouTube as well. We're going to start our YouTube channel. Um, so YouTube is big, Nick. It's really big. That's what the kids say, the Zoomers, if you will. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, if, if you're one of the, uh, the people who prefer YouTube, definitely check that out um, or keep an eye out, I should say, on our social channels. We'll let you know what's going on. Um, and we'll go from there. Anything else, guys? No. I think I'm this good. was a lot of fun. All right. Thanks, guys. Cheers. Cheers. Shut up and sit down.